0: Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Uh, today's guest, uh, Singapore-based uh, global political strategist, Parag Khanna, is founder and managing partner of FutureMap and the author of six books, including Connectography and the future is Asian. Uh, we've asked him to provide his thoughts on how COVID-19 can expect to change the region and the world. Parag, thank you for joining us. Great to see
1: you again, Joe. Yes, yeah, it's been a it's been a year, I think, since since we last spoke. <laughs> it's been a year, I think, since I was uh, got to have uh, the privilege of being uh, in Hong Kong in person yeah. uh, at the Asia Society for the for the book launch. So yes, a, a totally new world.
0: Yes, yeah, very new world. Uh, something that uh, I, I think you, you you sort of predicted. Uh, Uh, You've been predicting for a while, actually.
1: Well, one of the things that's happening is that the world is uh, multi-speed, right? And that was happening before. You have a North American economic trajectory, a European one and an Asian one. And obviously, this trifurcation is accelerating now. We do not know when the U.S.-Canada border will will even reopen. We know that the American stimulus is directed largely at Uh, You know, reviving the American economy, having Americans consume and spend on American goods and services. We know that there is an effort to nearshore production out of Asia into the United States. You know, there's there's a lot of these protectionist nationalist tendencies. We know that it will be a long time before transcontinental travel is restored to anything like what it was before. So there will be a North American trajectory, Europe, same thing, and Asia, same thing. Now, going into this pandemic, of course, Asia had the benefit of being heavily populated, which it still is, um, You know, having the fastest growth rates in the world, which it still does. And what has been proven with the pandemic is of course this embrace of technology as a, as a mechanism. And obviously some of what I called in the book, the new Asian values around technocratic governments with a high quality civil service, high degree of trust in government, uh, leveraging technology for public benefit uh, in the case of the pandemic technologies, uh, you know, contact tracing and so forth, and especially as it played out in Singapore, also protecting civil liberties. Uh, so embracing this technology correctly for the, from the domestic standpoint to suppress the virus and now from a international standpoint to reopen cross-border travel. So now we see that Singapore and Hong Kong, Australia and New Zealand, Singapore and Korea and other combinations of Asian countries are going to reopen. They're going to use the uh, you know, the sort of health tech uh, immu- immunity you know, certification, whatever the case may be, so that all of the, uh, the foundations of our economies that depend on our connectivity to each other, trade, investment, travel, tourism, those can start to recover faster than they will in other regions of the world. So in that sense, uh, again, the pandemic basically reinforces some of these very important trends that were underway before. Now, this pandemic, it's sort of fast-tracked a lot of sort of
0: technological changes, um, and uh, you're from your home right now in Singapore, um, and a lot of people have, not by choice, have been working from home now. And uh, do you see that the the future is going to be more of a work from home arrangement and how is technology going to support that?
1: Well, you know, it really does depend on what, uh, you know, sector of the economy you work in, you know, those of us who are lucky enough for this to have been a relatively seamless transition uh, or those of us who work from home anyway, you know, quite frankly, whenever I'm actually in the country, I generally work from home. Uh, So for me, it's been more the, the absence of travel more than anything else. Other than that, you know, it's been relatively similar. But I don't think that that, that describes most people, obviously. Uh, so that's why we've seen such a devastating impact on the retail economy, travel and tourism, hospitality, construction, you know, re, you know food and beverage and, and so forth. And then I think that is most people. And that is obviously a much larger share of GDP than, uh, than we have previously appreciated. Um, quite frankly, it's been, it was a big theme in my connectography book, is that circulation, the circulation of people using our infrastructure is what propels so much of the economy. Uh, the the analogy I used um, back then and would use again is that it's, you know, you're riding a bicycle and that pedaling and pedaling is what keeps the bicycle going. Suddenly you stop pedaling and obviously the bicycle stops. Mm-hmm. And we tend to believe that the world economy is just this, has this, You know solid foundation that is always churning this you know a core like a like the core of the earth you know a battery with perpetual power that is always going to have us be rotating and it's not in the world economy we are that battery right or either us as humans or it's the capital that we choose to invest you know the investments we make the supply chains we build and that circulation of people of goods of services and so forth around the world is there is no economy beyond that per se right in, at an international level right each country has its own fixed capital formation of infrastructure government spending and so on and so forth but globally speaking it is what we make of it and that is what i think has really come you know a, a lesson that's come front and center uh, in this in this crisis
0: hmm. I'd like to uh, touch base on one of the ideas that you spoke of sort of
1: introduction there. Uh,
0: The interdependence that so many countries have had with China is coming into question and um, a lot of resources necessary uh, to decouple. And uh, you you had a word there. Uh, I think it was a regionalization or. Yes. um, Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing that uh, the U.S. and Japan, they're they're sort of uh, saying that they're they're willing to support uh, uh, manufacturing to come back home, uh, get out of China. Uh, Do you see that that that's happening regionally here in Southeast Asia?
1: So what's what's interesting is that just because a country says it wants to divest from one place, it doesn't mean it will nearshore all of it, right? So if you take the example of Japan, Japan has announced a multi-billion dollar fund to draw, to divert foreign investment out of China. Now let's be clear that Japan first started to do that 10 years ago. Mm. It started with a rare earth mineral dispute when China threatened to block the export of rare earth minerals, which are critical for electronics components and so forth, uh, blocking the export of those to Japan, Japan got very worried and said, you know what? We have too many eggs in the China basket. Wages are rising there anyway. We have these geopolitical tensions with them. Let's start to take advantage of Southeast Asia. And Japan really led the charge to divert its investment from China into Southeast Asia. So now you have an initiative by the Japanese government saying more or less the same thing, right? Again, we still have too many eggs in the China basket. Uh, This virus has not been good. Think about the automobile parts that have come from Wuhan, supply chains that have been disrupted. We can't trust them. Uh, That doesn't mean that suddenly Japanese companies are going to nearshore all of that production to Japan is hardly a country in the world where it's more expensive to make something than Japan, Mm -hmm. right? The beneficiary of this is going to be Southeast Asia, where wages are obviously cheaper, and where Japan already has a staggering amount of investment, a huge amount, right? Again, built up over more than a decade. Now, let's take North America. Because of the USMCA, the US-Mexico Canada uh, Free Trade Agreement, the successor to the NAFTA agreement, what will basically happen is that to the extent that there will be nearshoring and manufacturing away from Asia, it's mostly going to benefit Mexico more than Mm -hmm. it will benefit the United States. It will benefit American companies in the sense that American companies will continue to save on wages by producing some things in Mexico. But it's not necessarily going to benefit in terms of American jobs per se. Again, this is also hypothetical. The, The Trump administration has floated the idea of providing some kind of a subsidy for nearshoring but as we know in the system of market economy that the united states has you cannot literally force a company to nearshore its manufacturing into the united states right you would have to take shareholder ownership of that company right that's not something the united states is actually doing right now Interesting.
0: Um, in, in terms of the nearshoring, uh, can we can we touch base on uh, your thoughts on uh, the I think the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership here in ASEAN.
1: I think you know the RCEP is very important, and it's not ASEAN; it's Asia, right? Asia. it's uh, right. much much bigger. Uh, you know, China is obviously a participant and a driver, as is Japan, as is um, Australia. Uh, so it's basically the TPP um, right. minus the Western Hemisphere. Um, with one difference being that India has not joined RCP yet, but that's because RCP doesn't cover uh, India's software exports. And so India already has a substantial trade deficit with East Asian countries, and that deficit would widen, uh, obviously, with RCP. Now, India does want to trade more and more and more with East Asia, but it wants to reduce its deficit, not expand it, right. and therefore did not join RCP. But we should very much consider India a very active and growing part of the of the overall asian trade picture what is positive about rcep is that a fortunately it was uh, passed last year so countries should continue to implement it and if they do uh, you know forecasts suggest that you would have a, a 200 billion dollar benefit in terms of intra asian regional trade which is not insignificant and that would benefit rich countries uh, like Japan or Australia that are exporting to you know, more duty-free, uh, tariff-free to uh, other Asian countries. And poor countries, obviously, as well, like Cambodia or Vietnam, that will continue to attract more investment into their uh, supply chains. So I think that overall, RCEP is certainly a good thing for Asia. Let's remember from a macro-global standpoint uh RCEP, again helps to increase the share of total asian trade that is intra-regional so it decreases asians dependence on europe or the us that is what began to happen after the 98 asian financial crisis that's what accelerated after the 2008 uh, um, uh global financial crisis and if asians are smart then the lesson that they will learn from the pandemic is to really Uh, implement RCEP so that it becomes a third example, each decade one new example of Asians deepening their internal integration in order to substitute their dependency on the rest of the world with growing dependency on each other. And that would be the best thing that Asians could do right now. Interesting. So uh, one of the advantages um,
0: of Asia and why you think the future is Asian is uh, is demographics. Uh, you, you think the the youth demographic here, the rising consumption, Asians. What you were just saying, they don't need to export to the world to sustain growth. Uh, where, where what, what, what countries specifically, um, just to, to focus on ASEAN here in APAC, is the future looking sort of better in the next one to five years?
1: Well, it's very interesting because, you know, ASEAN is one of the youngest regions of the world in terms of median age. Uh, You know, it has uh, rapid urbanization, but it doesn't have unlivable sort of cities. Right. Uh, Again, it's capturing all of this foreign investment. It's bringing down its internal barriers. We've seen that Vietnam and the Philippines, despite the, the sort of earthquake economically of the pandemic, are still likely to have decent growth this year, anywhere from four to five percent. Other countries, obviously, are going to suffer in the short term, like Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand, but are not, um, you know, uh, not sort of, you know, knocked off uh, kilter the way Argentina or Turkey or other countries are. So, you know, ASEAN markets are going to be able to persevere. We've seen that they've been very quick to offer a fiscal stimulus to, uh, you know, lower interest rates. Uh, to do all of the things that other countries are doing uh, to to kind of shore up the economy right now. So ASEAN is still in a good position, uh, quite frankly, relative to other parts of the world.
0: Hmm. Interesting. You, you mentioned the Philippines and Vietnam. Are there any specific industries there that, uh, that you see sort of with potential in the future?
1: Well, again, you know, these are, as I said at the beginning, there are some trends that were underway prior to the pandemic mm. that will simply be reinforced. And obviously, when it comes to electronics, uh, and other areas, again, the Philippines and Vietnam were already drawing in lots of investment every year, growing that investment, establishing special economic zones. The TPP trade agreement, let's remember, which they signed, was helping to bring even more of that investment in. And now you had, you still have TPP, you also have RCEP, and you have the, the shift, a uh, continued shift of supply chains out of China. So, you know, there is a demand shock in the world that is slowing these countries' exports. But in terms of, you know, preparing for the future, uh, these countries continue to be attractive places to invest. Mm. Uh, If we could uh, sort of jump back to uh,
0: COVID, uh, what are your thoughts on the WHO and the UN? Do you think that uh, they've responded uh, well or do you think they've dropped the ball on this um, in terms of uh, how this has been handled and how this has spread?
1: Well, the United Nations is, you know, 250 different, you know, uh, multilateral uh, bodies, you know, that have different funding structures and and hierarchies and and geographies that they cover and so forth. So I wouldn't want to generalize about the United Nations per se. Uh, As always, we should take it one entity at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the World Food Program is doing good work. The WHO, you know, is still important uh, in in some of the functional ways that it works in terms of uh, its support for health initiatives, um, you know, sharing of information and so on. Obviously, in terms of the politicization of sharing of information, of, of, you know, kind of the the rapid response to alerting the world about the pandemic, you know, there's a obviously very widely publicized discussion about whether the WHO has uh, dropped the ball, so to speak. You know, to be honest with you, uh, there's no. My opinion on that subject doesn't really matter, right? It's the kind of thing that is being kind of you know aired in public every single day. Um, but remember that the WHO is largely voluntarily funded. The Gates Foundation provides more funding for the WHO on an annual basis than almost every single sovereign contributor. Uh, and if you add up, you know, the, the Gates Foundation's contribution to the United States federal contribution, which is now obviously dropped to zero, mm-hmm. but that uh, in certain years was 30 to 40 percent of the total uh, global uh, pool of funding for the WHO. So, for example, if Bill Gates wanted to, he could easily substitute for the American federal government's, uh, right. you know, diminished contribution. So the WHO, in other words, is what humanity makes of it. We, by which I mean what different governments contribute and what different civil society actors contribute and so forth. It, it, very few international organizations have a genuinely independent essence, right? The WTO attempts to have that independent character and its dispute me- re- resolution mechanism comes the closest of any body to genuinely having independent capability. But the WTO is not really you know, uh, on the firing line here. The IMF is the one body that really stands out because it has obviously had to jump back into emergency crisis response mode. It's assembled almost or sort of put together a trillion dollar fund. Uh, It's offered uh, emergency credit lines to more than 100 countries and so on. So there's a renewed, restored relevance of the IMF without question. The World Bank has put together about $200 billion worth of emergency uh, lending, you know, zero interest. Uh, to some of the poorest countries in the world. Both the IMF and the World Bank have been lobbying for debt relief uh, to the poorest countries of the world. So these are all extremely important functions of international, intergovernmental institutions at this point in time. And I think that this is one of these moments that, that demonstrates which organizations really matter and which ones don't, uh, quite frankly. Now, obviously, given different cri- other crises that may occur, other institutions have the chance to prove their relevance. But this is obviously a moment where the IMF and World Bank are more important uh, than many of the other international bodies. Interesting. One of the important um,
0: uh, things that you like to talk about is the BR, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, is, is that still on track?
1: Well, you know, so it depends on what one means by on track. You know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative has been viewed as a very kind of, you know, monolithic uh, you know, hegemonic kind of, you know, China dominated uh, project, but it's also been evolving in just uh, the past five years since it was initiated. For one thing, the belt and road initiative is a subset of the broader issue of Eurasian infrastructural finance and integration, right? That is a process that has been going back at least 30 years to the collapse of the Soviet union. China has come in very strong as a contributor to that process but it isn't the, the, the end-all be-all. So secondly, within Belt and Road itself, it's evolved from something that's only China dominated to something that is a bit more multilateral, uh, a bit more room for negotiation, obviously a lot more participants, and also pushback against some Chinese terms and so forth. And also less volume of outbound Chinese capital to different geographies uh, last year versus three years ago versus five years ago. So it is a morphing thing. Uh, what we can say for sure is that, for one thing, uh, the amount of total capital that China has, has invested in BRI is on the order of 300 to 400 billion dollars, not one trillion dollars. Secondly, that capital is uh, being, you know, strongly reallocated away from far-flung geographies like Latin America and Africa towards the immediate periphery: uh, Central Asia, West Asia, Southeast Asia. And now a third thing is that many countries, whether they are nearby China or far away, are asking for debt relief and for a write down on some of these projects and a suspension of debt. And that China is realizing that it does have to, for the purposes of its own image and for debt sustainability and so forth, uh, it has to find compromises with those countries. But all of that is evidence, again, of the same point, which is that, that Belt and Road is not a monolithic thing. It's not the end-all, be-all, all roads don't lead to Beijing. And that if projects uh, are written off, written down, or cancelled, uh, and you know, then, then these countries may eventually turn to other supporters besides China to get them done. Uh, so I think that we need to view Belt and Road in that context. Interesting. Um, how are things in Singapore right now,
0: uh, as of May the 4th, um, in terms of controlling the coronavirus?
1: Well, you know, I think that there's uh, this is a a, a bifurcated society geographically, you might say. As you know, that the infection rate among the migrant workers is very high uh, because they live in these dormitories with, you know, tens of thousands of people sequestered, cloistered in one place. So, not surprisingly, there's been a very high infection rate. The government has, you know, on the one hand, as with other countries with a large migrant worker stock in this sort of geographical setup, like a Dubai kind of thing, uh, you know, there's been a lot of concern going back at least 15, 20 years, obviously about the treatment of those workers and the two tier status and so forth. So the government is aware of that, but in this case, it's, it is providing uh, you know quality care uh, and taking good care of these workers and ensuring they get paid and can send their remittances home and so on. So there is, I think you know it's been a wake-up call but the government has responded largely positively to, to that within the society the sort of you know uh, public you know community here the infection rate has dropped down extremely low it's single digits or you know low very low double digits each day so that's why the government has more or less accelerated its uh, plans to reopen uh, various sectors of the economy in terms of retail and offices and so forth so that's what we expect to see play out over the next couple of weeks and some schools have already reopened as well so a phased reopening of schools so you know i think again it's part and parcel of what we were discussing at the beginning which is mm-hmm. that um uh you know asian governments have taken this very seriously there was the sars effect the role of yeah. technology trust in government all of those things have more or less been at play in uh, bringing bringing the the numbers down uh
0: finally i mean is this uh, is this sort of a way of life that we we can expect to uh, to live with now uh, wh- what's the world going to look like in 12 to 18 months
1: well, uh, it's a very good question. I don't want to forecast that far ahead, but most definitely this is going to be something that we'll have to live with until there's a vaccine. And when, even when there is a vaccine, one has to worry about various other strains uh, of the virus and so on and so forth. So, you know, I mean, I think that we have to get used to this sort of hybrid life where maybe we'll be able to travel again. And if so, where? Probably keeping it largely regional rather than long distance. Obviously, you know, only travel for business if you have to. It has to be worth the cost, and a lot of companies are going to remain cost conscious. Um, you know, so so yes, there are obviously going to be some long-lasting changes in terms of our personal lives. Do you know? Do I think that once there is a situation where everyone has been vaccinated and we're not at any at that point in time, say two years from now, worried about a vaccine, should we be having the Olympics? Should we be having eighty thousand people in the stadium? You know, I guess the answer would be why not if those conditions are met. Mm. Uh, but obviously, we have to learn from the past and make sure that those those precautions are practiced. And obviously, you know, uh, there are temperature checks we could be doing, health checks and screenings. The uh, you know QR code uh, entries around travel history, immunity passports. You know that kind those kinds of uh, protocols should probably allow us to go back to. Um, you know, quote unquote, normal life, if we so choose for those categories of activity that require it, like going to a concert, you know, I would imagine that we should be able to do those things. It looks like we're sort of fast tracking uh,
0: the future uh, a lot uh, with a lot of the civilization. uh, I think that's
1: fair to say. Yeah, I think that's well put.
0: Yeah. Well, Parag, thank you so much uh, for your time uh, here at Asia Society. My pleasure. Always good to see you. All right.